Welcome to Stories Within Us. I am your host, Lisa Bush, and today we are nearing the end of season five. I will air one more episode and then break for summer. But this officially has been the season of pauses. I've been working on getting my manuscript ready to send out into the world in a lot of things. Most things actually were pushed to the side, including the podcast. So I thank you for your patience as I have made space for my writing. And this is the perfect segue into today's episode. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Mackie Motopiani on the never-ending, ongoing, unceasing tension (laughs) that exists specifically for mothers I think it exists for all mothers, but mothers who are trying, trying to also have a successful career. And Mackie does not sugarcoat the challenges that mothers right now in the 21st century are facing. And I'm so deeply grateful for that. This conversation was validating. It was honest. It was reassuring. And Mackie says it best with this line from the interview. She says, You can imagine conceiving of yourself as this modern, liberated woman and this individualistic, liberal democracy who has choices and who can do things and who can plan for the kind of life she wants until motherhood. (laughs) Until motherhood. And we laugh about it and we talk about how it is so deeply true. So in today's episode, we talk about what is the state's role in supporting women, what needs to be put in place so that women can be successful, and what is really holding us back. We discuss the motherhood tax, a term that is relatively new to me, but it just made so much sense when I talked about it with Mackie, and I think it's going to be quite illuminating for you as well. And then I'd also like to make a distinction before we dive into this conversation. And it's one that I usually make at the start of an episode dealing with gender and unpaid work or gender biases. And it's this, gender exists on a spectrum. Gender identity is in no way binary. But for the sake of today's conversation, Mackie and I are speaking very specifically to like the care work or the cultural expectation or the motherhood tax that very specifically falls on the shoulders of the mother. So we do use language that's very specific in this episode to male, female, man, woman, wife, mother, but gender is far more complex and far more fluid than these two binaries. So I feel that it is very important that I do preface these conversations with that understanding. So a bit about today's guest, Mackie Montepiani. Dr. Mackie Montepiani is a cultural critic, researcher, writer, and educator. She teaches in subject areas that include feminist theory, feminism in Africa, global gender studies, hip-hop culture, and motherhood. Her research projects and publications examine feminist traditions in Africa, maternal theory, motherhood, child care policy, and the political economy of care, as well as hip-hop culture, stand-up comedy, and equity and inclusion in organizational practice. Dr. Makimoto Payani was recently awarded the Distinguished Faculty Award from Mount Royal University, the Knowledge Mobilization Award, and the Alberta Professional of the Year 
Award. She is the founder of Mesa, which is a boutique consulting firm delivering strategic training and expert solutions in leadership, communication, and conflict resolution. And I'm going to include all the links so that you can learn more and connect with Mackie. And I'll also include the links to Mesa. So let's dive in today's conversation with Mackie on motherhood tax. Welcome, Mackie. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Mackie, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Anything that you would like to share with us? Sure. So I am currently a faculty in the Department of Women's Studies at Mount St. Vincent University and have spent lots of years, we'll say, as an educator in the area of gender women's, then I would say what's now understood as equity studies. My academic training is grounded in study of uh, colonialism, specifically on the African continent, but I also do some comparative analysis and especially anti-colonial social movements. And there my focus is on women-centered activities in terms of anti-colonialism and what is now commonly called decolonization. I've written and studied motherhood, particularly child care policy in Canada, and various facets of mothering and motherhood, including things to do with cultural studies and popular culture, parenting and lone parenting and single motherhood as well. You mentioned you were doing research in childcare policy in Canada. Could you give us any quick thoughts about the deals that have been reached? I think across the country now, Alberta signed on, we were dragging our feet, but any impressions you have, any thoughts, some positives, things that we could have done better? This has been a difficult push for decades in this country. The one piece that I worked on with an economist, Adrian McFarlane, who used to work for Stats Canada before he went into academia, and he was in charge of the number crunching and sending all the stats. And then I was looking at that and piecing together the patterns and narrating what those numbers were telling us. So this was before the federal government investment. So at that time, the trends that we saw were predictable, which is that across the country, the provinces that had policies that were closer to something like universalized childcare also had the lowest gendered pay gaps. And those provinces that had very privatized approaches to childcare and in which childcare was also very expensive were showing the highest gendered pay gaps. It's not only telling, I mean, it's interesting, but as I mentioned, it's also predictable in the sense that we are still in a time where overwhelmingly there is a gendered pattern to parenting 
and parenting responsibilities and child rearing. We've had a lot of change over the decades. There's been some progress in terms of the more equitable sharing of those responsibilities. But overwhelmingly, if you look at Stats Canada data, looking at even things like leisure time or how people spend their time, you see that overwhelmingly women have much less leisure time than men. And in terms of parenting, are still shouldering a larger portion of all of the daily work that's associated with that. And so what will happen is a very reasonable conversation between people if you're living in a context where access is difficult. So in terms of available spaces and also if the cost is high. For couples, uh, a very reasonable conversation will take place, which is how much is each person earning and does it make sense to pay this astronomical bill every month when what it means is that one person's monthly pay is almost entirely eaten up by the cost of childcare. So does that make sense? And for some people, for few, they'll say, yes, it does for a host of reasons. They are really committed to some sort of work career path for themselves, or they want that social environment, or, you know, it's a mental health issue. They need to kind of not have parenting be one of the main and primary types of work that they're doing. And so that makes sense. But that's kind of the smaller piece of this kind of trend overwhelmingly what you see, and this was the case in Alberta, is that that conversation would end up with a kind of invisible pattern of a lot of women opting out, opting out of wage work. Because the idea is, well, if the majority of what I make in a month is going to be eaten out by childcare, I might as well just stay home and just do this other type of labor myself because you're not bringing in that much income into the household anyway. You're going out there and doing all of this wage work and left with very little at the end of the month. And so added on to that as well, the social expectations, the social condition, some of that gendered conditioning that comes into play as well. So you would hear sometimes people talking about, I don't want other people raising my children, or just some of the expectations that mothers will have absorbed themselves. When that reality is presented to them in terms of this is going to actually eat up most of what I make in a month, you have a combination of all of those factors coming into play in a province like Alberta, for instance, already a pre-existing gendered pay gap, a pretty significant one. And that has a lot to do with the history of the kinds of industries that have been core in the province and how pay is associated with those industries. So that means that you will have exactly what we found, which is a considerable number of women choosing, and I use the air quotes because it's very easy to say that this is a voluntary choice. But of course, it is a choice that is made in the context of particular limitations. And so we don't actually really 
have a good sense of what kinds of choices people would be making were they not faced with those particular limitations. There are so many good pieces to that, Mackie. Thank you for sharing your perspective with us. But I'm going to say it again. I'm thinking of those in the States right now. So those with, when you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, those provinces with universal childcare had the lowest gender pay gap. And those with privatized childcare had the highest gender pay gap. For Canada, it does give me some hope and some perspective. I'm also wondering a lot of what you were talking about. And I also, for whatever reason, I have always been hyper vigilant about double expectations, gender biases, double expectations for men and women. Since I was a child, I don't know at what point I really started paying attention, but it was at a very, very young age. And I wonder how much when you're talking about women and using the air quotes, opting to stay home, how much of that is, yes, okay, we can look at our salaries and I am making less But how much of that is also social conditioning as I'm raising or doing my best? I'm doing my best on a good day. I'm raising a son and a daughter to observe like my conditioning. So we've had decades, if not centuries of conditioning, even you, Mackie, with your studying me with the unlearning I'm trying to do. It is, I'd say, centuries of conditioning as to what's acceptable behavior for a female and what's acceptable behavior for a male. And so when my daughter acts in a way that, you know, you can feel it, it bothers you or upsets you, always ask myself if she was my son, would that upset me? Would that outburst upset me if she was male? It is so ingrained, like it is a day-to-day unlearning. So I'm just curious because I know you talked about different cultural understandings of motherhood and we'll talk about that, but it's kind of like they're linked, they're braided together. I think there's that systems, the salary, the pay, the privatized childcare. But then there's also that just cultural norms, like boys will wear dark blue colors and they will play with trucks and they will bang things and girls will draw hearts and wear pink. That wasn't even a question. But do you agree that they're both linked? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, there's so much that we could talk about in terms of social conditioning and what people absorb. So one of the ways that women will deal with this persisting tension, or let's say families and then women within that, because what happens with children and parenting is that because it's still overwhelmingly that labor is more associated with women than men, with mothers than with fathers. In an individualistic society, it's really then left to individual households to figure this out. Canadian feminists have pushed for a long time for this to be a collective responsibility and for us to figure out this is why there was that push for many. It's been going on for decades. The Canadian feminist push for universalized childcare because it's coming out of an argument that this responsibility, this work has to be collectivized. This has to be a part of the common responsibility, which means you do need some involvement from the state and you need significant state subsidy for this. So 
because we've had, generally speaking, a federal approach and the provincial approaches that are, with a few exceptions, very different from this collectivist approach that I'm describing, that means that that responsibility and the responsibility for navigating and balancing that tension is put onto individual households. And then because of the gendered dynamic, then within those households, that responsibility, a lot of it is placed on the individual mothers within those households. One way that I've seen mothers navigate this is with this opting out pattern that I mentioned. The other is, let's say you'll have someone who is just really focused on clearing some sort of career path for themselves. And they dig their heels in and they say, I've got to figure this out. Or within the context of this household, we have to figure this out. The way that they will balance both the gendered conditioning, which is that overwhelming sense of primary responsibility for child rearing, as well as the ambition and the need to practice a profession is to download then that gender responsibility onto other women. So that's the other kind of thing you see in terms of the whole nanny industry. And that becomes one way that for some mothers, they can assuage that gendered guilt, that I'm not technically away from my child or letting someone else raise my child in terms of putting them in a daycare facility. They're still kind of in the home, but also you're not the one personally and directly doing all of that stuff in the run of the day. You've got another woman there. It's an attempt to kind of balance that tension in a way that still plays into this gender conditioning. But then, of course, what we've done is, again, just privatized an exploitative and very gendered and racialized labor practice within the cocoon of the home. And it's been facilitated by the state because, in fact, that was the bargain that was struck as a kind of response to the push of feminists for universalized childcare. The response was, okay, we're not going to do that, but what we'll do is facilitate this privatized and individualist practice of tinkering with immigration law and labor policy in order to facilitate the incoming of cheap labor from developing economies into here to then address this persisting need. You said that and things clicked into place because I'm even thinking beyond the idea of the nanny sending your kids to an accredited daycare. There's a large daycare facility that we sent our kids to for many years while I was working. And I'm thinking back throughout the time they were there, both of them, I never saw a male employed there. So it's not feminism. I'm saying, well, I as a woman get to have a career and go off and do things. So I'm sending it out to another woman. The individuals working there are not paid for their qualifications. They are not paid for their education. They're not paid for their labor, what they should be. So it seems cyclical, very cyclical. And the wages are important. I mean, there's the very obvious gendering of the profession. And then, as you mentioned, just the low wages attached to that as well, which has been a pretty central 
conversation here in Nova Scotia on the part of childcare advocates, like really pointing out the importance of having a living wage and a good wage for childcare workers, care workers more broadly, to have that determined based on an idea of comparable worth, where you're not just sort of relying on this historical devaluation of this type of work and the way that it's just taken for granted as being easy work. So you don't have to pay that much for it. This idea comes from both a kind of gender essentialist idea that women are just born naturally inclined towards this kind of work. The idea is, or the assumption is that one is born naturally inclined towards running around after children and doing all of those things. You know, it's just an extension of the kind of fun things that women do in the home. Now we've just kind of extended it to the public sphere. So do you really need to pay a lot for that? So you'd ask yourself, but it doesn't make sense if someone's doing like a four-year undergraduate degree in early childhood education, and then they're being paid extremely low wages working with small children. Like, how can that be? This is a trained person (laughs) with a university degree. Well, that's kind of why, because the type of work is not really taken seriously. So in terms of thinking about comparable worth assessments of wages, you know, it would be really helpful in the sense of looking at other types of work, like the many different types of work that one would do if they were in construction, from holding up the stop sign at a construction site to being an engineer. There's so many different types of work that would be involved in even one construction site, for instance. And how do you determine the wages that people get in that kind of sector? And they do actually tend to be higher than what you would find early childhood educators being paid. And one of the key differences between those forms of work is that one has been historically gendered masculine and has been male dominated and the other one has been historically feminized and woman dominated. And so that's, I think, a key sort of important way that I know some bureaucracies are starting to adopt a comparable worth kind of model in terms of determining skill set, how much formal training and education went into preparing oneself for that kind of work. How much does this work contribute in value to the society? That's also important. So, you know, why would we say that building a road contributes that much more value than educating small children? Well, how is that determination made? And what are the factors that are considered in making those kinds of determinations? So there are parts when you were speaking, Mackie, that I could feel this heat just running through my core. And I know now that's anger. You know, when you were talking about how many people think that this is not work and 
when I was an assistant principal, part of my duties was supervision once a week of a kindergarten class. So for about 35 minutes, I was working with a group of about 25 year olds. I cannot think of much more challenging work. I've waited tables, I've worked landscaping, taught middle school, I've done quite a bit. That time with those five-year-olds were probably the most challenging aspects of my career. And so it's just interesting. I'm using interesting. It's maddening. It's infuriating how people have these opinions about what is not work when they've never worked. Because I promise the people that are saying working with small children isn't work are not the people that have done the work. But thank you for sharing that. I think it's really important to acknowledge that. So Mackie, you've done some research on the motherhood tax. And I think I have a general idea of what it is. And I'll tell you, and then I want to hear your thoughts and your research findings on it, because this is what we were talking about a little bit before I hit the record button. It's something that fascinates me. And I think about probably on a daily basis. So the motherhood tax is the idea loosely defined as how women face a per child drop in their wages when they become mothers. It can also relate to how in some institutions, women are viewed as less capable workers and offer fewer opportunities after they have children. So can you speak a little more to this in your research findings? Why does it happen and what needs to happen to prevent or change this? I mean, the term is pretty self-evident in the sense of motherhood and then tax. Okay, so we're talking about a kind of levy. One might even say a type of punishment in a way, really, for being responsible for children. And it's in a gendered form. It's still predominantly the case that women and mothers shoulder the larger part of the responsibilities for child rearing and all of the duties that go along with that. You know, I think that we don't enough talk about and show how long that list is. It is incredibly long in the run of a day. And so for someone to be doing all of, or the majority or the larger share of all of that, and then at the very same time, be competing with peers in the workplace who don't have that reality. And Petra Buskins has written really well about this sort of phenomenon of, you know, we're in the 21st century and there has been a lot of progress when it comes to women's rights and when it comes to even just discussing gender. For instance, one thing I'm really struck by is how mainstreamed feminist language is today in a way that if I think back even 15, 20 years ago, this was a very specialized kind of language that you wouldn't find in newspapers or in public discourse. That's one thing I notice as wow, you know, we still have a lot of work to do, but one very visible change, and I would say it's a type of progress, is again the way that that these concepts and this language that would have been something very specific that I would be seeing in a feminist classroom are now just part of everyday talk. 
Can you give us an example of some of the language? Oh, oh gosh. Patriarchy. You know, patriarchy, (laughs) feminization of this and that. What else? I remember that saying white person was unheard of. Identifying a white person Mm -hmm. as white. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't even pinpoint when all of a sudden you would start seeing this in reporting or in just more mainstream literature and discourse. And I thought, oh, okay, you know, now people are identified as white, okay? (laughs) Because I do remember a time when had you said in a classroom setting or a business setting, you're a white woman, white man, oh, incendiary, like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm, So, mm -hmm. you know, it's things like that, which don't, of course, necessarily mean that they translate into progressive policy shifts, but it is a kind of change in the culture for sure that we can identify. This is a kind of long-winded way of saying, as Petra Buskins has pointed out, that you might find a way of saying that presently it might be possible. And I mean, might if you're even kind of not taking into consideration all the intersectional factors like socioeconomic standing, there's a lot of other things. But anyway, let's just say that there is a kind of overarchingly superficial way in which we might say you can imagine conceiving of yourself as a modern, liberated woman in this individualist liberal democracy who has choices and who can do things and who can plan for the kind of life that she wants until motherhood. Ah, (laughs) until motherhood. Right? Thank and you for saying that, that because I was like, who is yes. this You're person? Like, okay. Is this going? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm like, what am I doing wrong? Okay. Continue. <laughs> yes. And even Sorry. the first part of what I said, it's really important to remember there are a lot of things I'm leaving out there because that is even inconceivable for a lot of women. But let's say that compared to like 20 years ago, You might be able to say there's a way in which some privileged young woman, and in fact, were encouraged to think this way. This is the kind of popular discourse and girl power stuff and all of that, that you just have to imagine it for yourself and push hard. And in this day and age, you can do it. Yeah. Okay. So if we then start looking at all of the layers that are involved. Well, okay, what are you talking about? Someone who has had access to what kinds of resources? What are some of the real constraints that one would be facing in fashioning this amazing, liberal, free, sort of (laughs) modern woman identity? And then together with that very important analysis around the intersectional layers is, again, this reality of Even that might be conceivable until you become responsible for a child, children, or a dependent, an ill parent, until the care responsibilities that are so heavily gendered and weighted to women, until those kick in. And then you start to see you're faced with the real constraints associated 
with care work. And so that's really what the motherhood tax concept is speaking to. It's about care work and the continued gendering of care work and how much that substantially shifts the reality of women's life experience. And so, yeah, in terms of thinking about what does this look like, there's so many different ways we can think about it. What happens in terms of the various pauses that a woman would have to make in order to be able to shoulder that care work? Maybe it's about sort of shifting back and not pushing as much in the workplace then that has a a kind of domino effect in terms of upward mobility in the workplace. Or it has an effect in terms of how long it takes one to hit the milestones that they want to hit in terms of their career progression. And that would also have an economic impact as well in terms of your retirement fund and the savings that go into retirement and so on. So that is just one quick way of thinking about taxation as related to the gendered responsibility for care. And there's so many other kinds of financial costs, and some have referred to this as really a kind of punishment for having children. Yeah. And I have read as if that wasn't bad enough as it is, but I have read that historically when men have kids, their salary goes up, statistically speaking. Yeah. Where that happens. And, you know, it's hard to also tell sometimes because you might have a workplace where negotiating salary is involved, Mm -hmm. or even if Mm -hmm. it's not, let's say that a workplace has a grid And that is supposed to make things more fair because it's assessing like with like. And if people have similar amount of experience, then they are slotted on the grid. But even that is up to discretion because it's up to whoever is deciding what one's past experience amounts to. But yes, that's still happening. And it's happening because of this very old gendered family wage concept that men were heads of households. The wage is determined according to what it would take for that head of household to earn an income that could provide for their dependents. And so one of the reasons also, aside from just the feminization of certain types of work. But one of the other reasons women, you would see a gendered pay gap is this assumption that women were already members of households in which there was a man earning the family wage. So why would you then pay her at a similar level when that household as a whole was already getting a family wage? And so to some extent, I would imagine that that's still happening, this kind of idea that it is a sign of stability to hire a father because they're responsible for the family. They're not Mm. likely to want to take risks in terms of moving jobs a lot. Um, Very different kind of thinking than, you know, when you have a mother sitting in front of you because, oh, we all know, in fact, 
that it tends to be women who are overwhelmingly responsible for the grunt work. So that's a very different kind of assessment. Oh, how reliable is this person? They're not probably going to be able to stay longer hours. If there's travel outside of town that is needed for the job, they're not likely to be the one who can do that. Even if they don't have kids, and of course it's illegal to even ask those types of questions in the context of an interview. But let's just say from an employment perspective, if someone was thinking about liability, the other thing is that just by virtue of like looking at a person, sometimes you can think, well, they're going to cost more because it looks like I'm looking at a young woman. And so if she does decide to have kids at some point, she may have to take time off parentally, in which case we might have to hire somebody to replace her during the time that she's off. And so that's costing more. Of course, the assumption is that a man wouldn't be taking as much time off, which we see is not exactly accurate more and more. You're seeing more and more parental leave rather than maternal leave, which is great to see. But there's still a lot of pressures associated with that for fathers, which discourages them from really taking good advantage of those kinds of policies in the workplace. And so, yeah, I think in an indirect way, we can see how patterns that, generally speaking, a lot of people would observe, like if you ask them who tends to be responsible for kids, I imagine a lot of people would say, yeah, it's probably mostly moms. And because of that understanding, you could also then see how that could play into workplace hiring and those types of decisions and fathers being this assumption that a father is tied to a woman in the background who's doing that grunt work. That's why you wouldn't have to worry that much. Mm -hmm. And that's why the association of liability, it just doesn't work in the same way relative to the fathers. And you know, I laughed when you said the poor fathers. I did. But I feel like we need to acknowledge that this system, and we've said this always doing feminist work, the system is not good for men or women. To be a man and to think, okay, it's my job to be the earner of the household or whatever, like you're making these wildly vast assumptions that men want a career and men want to work and men want to move up. I mean, I know I've had personal experience my husband fully supports me and whatever endeavors, whether it was within a system or working on my own, and he is ready at any time. You know, if my career was to take off, he would gladly run the house and things like that. So I think that we have to acknowledge that it puts women in a difficult situation, but you're also making these vast assumptions about men as well. And families and family formation. Exactly. Yeah. It's really not addressing the realities of the spectrum of different family forms. And we really need good policy to support people and to support families in all of the variations. Okay. So, final question. 
As part of Stories Within Us, I asked each guest to submit a picture, a snapshot of them that was a moment in time that sparked connection, healing, disruption, challenge, or change. And Mac, you sent a picture. Oh my gosh, it was so cool. It looks like you're in a forest on a zip line. We were repelling. You were repelling. We were repelling. Okay. I was just like, I want to hear the story. It looked fascinating and fun and so cool. Okay. So can you talk to us about the picture that you have shared with us today? It is a family trip that I took with my kids to Cancun, Mexico. And we tried. So here we go. We're going to get into like now the politics of ecotourism and all of that. But it's really not easy to both kind of think about how much you can afford on one income (laughs) and all of the sort of very important ethical considerations that go into taking a trip to a place that for a very long time has been in an inequitable economic positioning relative to the other two very strong and powerful economies that it's often had trade relationships with, namely the United States and Canada. And so I really wanted to do something special for my kids. And I wanted us to have some time, some concentrated time away together, but also to just get out there into nature and not just do the all-inclusive resort thing where you just like by the pool basically you know the whole time and so we built in a lot of these types of activities and I'm really glad that we did I shared that photo because it was such a happy memory in terms of us just we really pushed it like every day we were out there doing something in nature (laughs) and It just ended up being a really fond time for us. Really great memories we made during that trip. Lots of really hilarious things happening. For instance, that that very picture when it was my son's turn, he was the crankiest person you could imagine because he was scared. Absolutely scared. Because you had a person at the top, the guide, holding onto the rope as you were coming down this cave, very high, the height was something. And when he got to the bottom, we're cheering for him. He is absolutely distraught and cannot believe that he allowed another human being that he, as far as he's concerned, this is a stranger that he's trusting with his safety and his life. And so that becomes a really funny kind of memory as well, because he proceeds to be cranky for the next two hours. And it's something that we now can remind him of and the funny things that he was saying. The guide who was with us was very jolly and loved to sing songs. And so it was also this funny kind of thing. You've got a really cranky young person there with this super jolly guide who just is totally unfazed by him and the rest of us, of course, just joining in on the happiness until he's just sort of like forced to give it up already and just kind of join in the fun. So 
I think it's just a fond memory for myself. And I believe for my kids too, they bring it up quite a bit. And it's one of the few things I've been able to do as a lone parent. Like the money issue is real. You're trying to do all kinds of things. You know, if you're lucky enough to be able to think about putting aside for college and whatever. So it was special in that sense as well. Just taking some time away from the busyness of every day. You know, we're all coming into the house and hurriedly doing things and sometimes just sort of like very quickly passing each other and not really tuning in to each other. And it is absolutely a privilege to say, okay, we're going to just go away. And it's interesting kind of thinking through that. I think about the layers of privilege that I have. And at the same time, the grueling labor, the absolutely grueling labor that has gone into hanging on and digging my heels in and saying, I will go through my training. I will finish school. I will have my career. It's intense. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing the snapshot. Thank you for sharing the story. And Mackie, thank you for your, gosh, your time and your expertise and your research and your knowledge and your perspective on all of this. There's so many thoughts running through my head right now. I'm going to go and just, I think, sit and like process all of that. But I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and to share with us today. So thank you very much, Mackie. Thank you so much, Lisa, for the invitation. And I'm sure that we could just sit and talk for hours and hours. Thanks very much. As always, I thank you for being a part of the stories within us. I invite you to share this work, text an episode to a friend, rate it, leave a review, share it with others on your social media site, help to amplify the story shared. Remember to tag stories within us when you post. So on Twitter, it's at stories within us. And on Instagram, it's at stories within us podcast episodes air on Wednesday. We've been taking pauses this season. That's okay. I'm embracing it. And I'm asking you something for this episode as well. It's the same thing I asked when I interviewed MLA Raki Pancholi. She spoke with us on the importance of accessible, affordable childcare. And I asked at the start of that episode that if you're listening to it and you have specifically males in your life that you could share with. So a coworker, a colleague, a partner, a husband, a family member that you could share it with, I invite you to do so. This is a topic that if you're listening as a woman, you're listening to this, you think, oh yes, I I get this. I get this so much. I've lived this. I've experienced this. But I think that it's important that others outside of women are listening to this. So full disclosure, I will be texting this to my husband and asking him to listen to the full episode because I think it's everyone, if we want to make changes in the workplace, if we want to make changes in our policy, everyone needs to be aware of the motherhood tax and the challenges that women are facing right now. Pass this on, share this. The design for Stories Within Us was created by Dr. Milena Rejikowska and Chris Shattuck of Two Hot Soups Consulting. Post-production and sound editing is done by East Coast Studios. And I thank you once again for listening. Here's to creating change within us and change around us one story at a time. We'll talk soon.